The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On The Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On The Money. Well, good sun, sunny, I almost said Sunday, good sunny Tuesday morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On The Money Radio Show. Glad you could listen today. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm here with uh, a couple of my regular guests. It's, we've been pretty good, pretty good score here. Of course, we have Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, thanks for I'm, joining us today. I'm, got a lot of questions for you today. Uh, you thought so, didn't you? Good to be here. Uh, and uh, certified financial planner professional and retirement income certified professional, David Rudy. David, good morning. Good morning. And certified financial planner professional, Ryan Repco, who also works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. You can call in with your questions at 356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. We also want to welcome those tuning in on Facebook Live. And it's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. All we're here for, folks, is to help you ask better questions, not so much about the answers. We do have answers sometimes, but it's just really important to know the right questions to ask your financial advisor. So we really try to be educational here and uh, try to stay out of the commercialization business, don't we, Dave? <laughs> That's right. Otherwise, Dave yells at me. Then he'll want to call it Dave Rudy's on the money. I'm surprised he hasn't asked already. Well, Fred, before we get to Illinois' celebration of uh, coming higher taxes, it would appear, Warren Buffett says he wouldn't relocate a business to a state like Illinois. He doesn't want to get stuck paying for its pension crisis, he recently told CNBC. In a public sector, you know it's a disaster. If I were... If I were re relocating into the same state that had a huge unfunded pension plan, I'm walking into liabilities. And those are big numbers, really big numbers. And when you see what they would have to do, I say to myself, why do I want to build a plant there that has to sit there for 30 or 40 years? Now, is this taxation going to help or hurt? I think it... Uh if it's done the way it seems to be going now, I think it will be a, a net uh, loss. But, again, it could be done in a, in a better way. Um, I'm not sure that, uh, obviously, uh, you have to take that into account because you're you're buying into the uh, uh, debts. Usually uh, a business has to pay for what you're getting in the current year. But in Illinois, if you come in, you're, you're basically assuming uh, a lot of the debt that occurred uh, years before. The only saving thing, which uh, – he didn't think into account is that many of those things are, are capitalized. So if you go into an area that ha has high property taxes, you typically pay less for the land. So there, sure. there is a kind of set off. It's not a one to one set off. But there so is, a piece it, of land is only worth so much value, right? Right. Or so much cost to a company. So a, a part of it is you have a huge tax bill associated with it, then the value of the land goes down appropriately. Because right. people aren't going to spend so much money. Yeah. They don't care how much of it is in tax and how much of it right. is in mortgage payment. It's kind of what's the total cost. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting. I was I spent an hour and a half talking to a pal of mine catching up who owns a big paper plant. You know, they, make, they create a lot of packaging uh, for a lot of major chains, et cetera, and restaurant chains. And uh, he's already kind of has hedged his bet by opening a plant a similar plant in Texas right. uh, and you know I asked him I said hey is this kind of seeing what's looked like it's coming at the down the hill at you um, do you plan you know kind of what how are you gonna relate to this and to do he says well he thinks over time uh, not immediately he says it's manufacturing is not that simple I guess right. he said but certainly he goes I'm glad we have a plant down there and he says eventually he could see a transition out of right. the state of Illinois over time, and it'd be a number of years. But well, that's been happening for decades. Though the fact is, uh, uh, labor in the South is uh, probably somewhat lower skill, but also uh, more uh, modest, modestly paid. So there has been a, a kind of migration from uh, the North to South, especially in certain kinds of uh, low tech manufacturing. That's going to continue. So, so again, it's, it's a complicated thing. Tax is only one part of a fairly complicated equation in terms of. Uh, uh, labor costs, work rules, uh, all kinds of things like that. And Illinois is not particularly great in terms of work, work rules either with uh, uh, the uh, workers' comp and things of that sort. So, But, again, uh, 
I, I suppose it may be a straw that uh, breaks the camel's back, but uh, this is kind of a, a, a gradual process, and there are other adjustments that are made. So, again, Illinois has some advantages, and the advantage which downstate people probably don't uh, recognize is the Chicago area. That's really the driving uh, force in terms of the state's economy. So I, I, I think some of the people who want to uh, withdraw from or, or split Illinois into two states probably haven't looked at the numbers very closely. Yeah, you know, I hear about that, and I wonder, is that such a good idea for downstaters? I mean, I understand that maybe the frustration of yeah. seeing what's going on in Chicago, but it would strike me that you would end up with a really poor two-state well, situation. Yeah, if you, if you, if you cut it at uh, Interstate 80, you have another uh, Missouri or Indiana, basically, on the, the bottom yeah. part. The other thing, I, I don't think they've been following the Brexit uh, debate either, uh, uh, detaching yourself from something that's not as easy as you might think. Right. And again, it's, it's not going to happen in Illinois because it has to have the approval of the state plus the Congress would have to approve it. And it's uh, simply something that's, uh, I guess it was done in Maine and Massachusetts uh, 150 years ago or 200 years ago. But, but the uh, really high income earners, aren't they also tend to be more mobile than low income earners? Well, not, not just the earners, but the uh, activities. Yeah. Okay. Most people, uh, the, the companies that are uh, really uh, prosperous now are often ones that have fr fairly little uh, uh, capital in terms of uh, huge uh, manufacturing businesses. So if you have a bunch of computers, you can move those pretty pretty easily from one place to another or buy, uh, uh, you know, buy warehousing facilities someplace else. So it's not that you're locked in place by uh, capital investments much anymore. Yeah, well, that's going to be interesting. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to be too negative about it. I, I don't... You know, I suppose it's, it will raise some revenues, uh, but yeah. I think it will push some high-income people out of the state of Illinois. But, right. you know, you, hopefully they've taken that into consideration. But I found that politicians generally don't. They don't, yeah. uh, they don't understand substitution and, and that, yeah. that money goes where it's treated best. And sometimes raising taxes, you, get, you end up with less revenue yeah. or, not near, or many times not near as much as yeah. you think you're going to Well, this, get. this is a complicated uh, question. So, again, I, I wouldn't uh, be against... Uh, modestly higher taxes and maybe uh, some more progressivity in the system, but the way they've done it in this draft, that there are two things happening. One is a constitutional amendment. The other is a bill that would take effect if the if, uh, amendment was approved were approved to be uh, to allow uh, graduated rates. And the bill actually is a monstrosity. It's all kinds of uh, sort of drafting mistakes and uh, punitive kind of taxes and things of that sort. So. Uh, that sort of warns you about uh, uh, voting for the amendment, that, that once that's there, the uh, General Assembly could do most anything. You think 60% is a hard get? It has been in the past. And okay. Again, uh, philosophically, it's a very dubious sort of thing. Uh, it, Illinois certainly has problems, but uh, if someone comes to you and said, I'm going to cut taxes for 97% of the people and Saga to the other three percent doesn't seem like a very yeah a very fair kind of arrangement. No, but it's certainly politically it you know hey as long yeah. as I'm okay and somebody else is paying the freight and making the state better and that you know like you said this is a complicated well, that's, issue. That, it's that's it's not the, a simple issue. That's one of the uh, again I, I think I said once before that I don't think that uh, uh, Governor Prister spent a lot of time reading the Federalist Papers, but one of the arguments there was that you don't want the majority to exploit the minority right. and uh, fairness is not just uh, putting all the burden on highest income people it's distributing it in an appropriate way among among people yeah and I suspect that's why you know it's popular to say 97 percent may get some relief or or not but the, it's very cynical relief it is it's not gonna be a relief because well, relief if they actually do it it would be five ten dollars yes and then I notice there's a lot of other taxation they're talking about yeah, um, any any of it significant I think it is, and I guess I, I'm, I'm in principle in favor of uh, infrastructure, uh, roads, and things of that sort that Illinois could benefit from that. Uh, the question is whether they could do it efficiently, and that's obviously always a, a question. So there are a bunch of taxes that would go with the infrastructure uh, development. And again, a lot of these are kind of pie in the sky. Uh, they always have uh, kind of magical thinking about how much money they can raise right. from gambling or from uh, sports betting or whatever it might be, and usually those don't actually materialize when it uh, comes down to putting it in effect. And then some of the blocking and tackling stuff, just, you know, higher registration fees on cars, yeah. roughly double it looked like to yeah. me, uh, doubling think, the gas I don't tax. think that's unreasonable. Uh, oh, maybe to, not. To, I'm to, not to have, but I'm uh, just better roads, but if they actually did it, I think that would be a, 
I'd be happy to pay a little bit more and have better. I roads. think everybody would. I think that's. Uh, I have one pal that left uh, that like one of the higher earners in the country probably, and his comment to me was, "Look, I, it wasn't the taxation that was bothering me. It was how they disrespected it. You know, yeah. he felt disrespected. It was a personal opinion. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. And I and I think." I think most people, you said, oh, uh, yeah, if you're actually, I can see the improvements yeah. in front of my eyes, and, and it's really a transparent square deal. Uh, yeah, we all know. have, I guess we all have sort of common experience here in the studio that if you go to Dallas and look at the infrastructure right. there, it's not exactly the same as you see in uh, in Chicago or Peoria. Or no, uh, you know, I, every time I get off the airplane into the Dallas area, it's, you know, you, you, you forget, it's kind of like a, a frog getting, starting out getting boiled in cold water. You just really forget how there's not much going on in Illinois until you get off the airplane and just see crane after crane after crane, boom, you know, it's just. But the a, actual roadways though are, are much different too. I, I think they're a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. And now maybe that's because they have tollways and all that, but so do we, and they're not mm -hmm. that great, but their infrastructure is really good. Uh, from what I can tell as an outsider, I haven't been there long enough. You know, I have an apartment there, and I get there maybe once a month. But uh, but I, the roadways are very impressive. I mean, they but they don't have the freezing and thawing and all that, I guess. But they also seem to take care of them. Well, uh, so you're not pessimistic on the state of Illinois? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, not, I guess not overly pessimistic. I mean, obviously, we have uh, some uh, difficult situations to confront, and we don't have a good record of uh, – of, uh, dealing with our problems but so I, i'm i'm pessimistic in that sense but i'm not uh i don't believe it's going to be a, a catastrophic kind of end and you don't see uh an illinois bankruptcy in your lifetime well no uh or insolvency is probably a better term because, okay uh, uh, no okay so uh i always worry about the vicious death spiral right yeah, sure so you, the first wave is already left at a five percent tax increase from what did we have three three yeah, and a half five. Uh, and I saw my person. I saw a lot of my clients. Not yeah. a lot, a number of them, right. high income people that left the state of Illinois and, and took their income with them. And I always wonder about this vicious death spiral uh, impact of okay, there's probably this other group that didn't do it, but don't you know? It doesn't take much maybe to push them into it. Right. And now the hole just got bigger. It spread amongst fewer incomes. And right. yet the needs didn't decline, and therefore they right. have to go back for more taxation, mm -hmm. and then you push out another wave, and it's right. like vicious death. Can that can that happen in a state of vicious death spiral of that uh, sort? Sure, I, I mean it can happen in countries, and uh, it can happen in states. But I don't think we're that far along. I mean, there's a the famous quote from uh, Hemingway about uh, in one of the characters asked the other, "And how did you go bankrupt?" And, uh, Person said, "Well, gradually at first, and then suddenly at the end." <laughs> so, so again, there, there's always a question of what, what, what. Uh, and so, is the tipping point. so if I because I have so many pensions in this town and, uh, through the university system, um, if I'm 60 years old retiring, I'm thinking I have a 30-year timeline of my pension of my life. Uh, can you even address the odds that you think? Uh, just opinion that that three percent provision for cost of living adjustment <clears throat> disappears, or there's some. Well, take that one no. first. Well, it's very com complicated. To you'd have to go through a constitutional amendment process. So I think it's probably unlikely. But uh, we're not talking about. So in, in the worst case for the retiree, there might be some limitation. Like in Ohio, uh, they they can do uh, midstream mid uh, correction, mid-course correction, so they can, you know, reduce the uh, cost of living, things of that sort. So something like that could happen, but it's a long ways away, but that's not the same as losing your pension. Uh, so, right. so I don't think that's going to happen, but even if it were to happen, it, it would be a, a, a painful but a modest kind of correction right. in situation. Not like, okay. So I, I re I'm really asking you, Fred, is because I have so many yeah. of these clients that, I think sometimes I'm a little too bearish on my yeah. views of that. Uh, but even as of late, I've been saying, look, for yeah. you, I don't sit around worrying right. about it. It's probably a different deal for the 25-year-old right. that's landed at the university. Right. And the market's not always correct, but if you uh, you would think, uh, uh, given the scenario we talked about, about how bad Illinois is, who would want to lend 
uh, money to Illinois. Well, the fact is people lend money to Illinois all the time, and the premium is only half a percent or one percent. So if you're lending money at 5% instead of 4%, it means you have some concern there, but that's not uh, a default situation. It's not like lending money to Puerto Rico or Argentina. Right, yeah. I think that's uh, I, th- I think that's a good point. Uh, you know, markets tend to be right. They tend to reflect the best knowledge of all the overlapping minds, and they're just saying, yeah, you're a little riskier than maybe the state next door, so we're going to, but it's not, we're not no. going to. People worry about that, too, with the uh, the national debt yeah. and the national uh, you know borrowings that yeah. suddenly we're going to wait. It just doesn't work that well, way. Well, it's different. Uh, the national debt is a sure thing. There'll there right. never, never be a default there. Uh, the problem is uh, you'll be paid with dollars, and the question is how, how, how valuable the dollars would be. So the state of Illinois doesn't have the, the ability to right. uh, uh, to deal with monetary issues and create money, but the national government does. So there's absolutely no chance of true default for the, right. the federal government. But, again, that's not to say your your uh, lending is safe in terms of real purchasing power. I'm just thinking uh, there's, there's maybe it's because of all this tariff talk lately um, – that one of the things that always seems to come into that conversation is, and the Chinese own a trillion and a half dollars of our debt, and so do all these other countries, and suddenly they may stop buying our debt, or the dollar's going to collapse from those people, you know, our runaway deficits, and therefore people are going to quit buying our bonds. The marketplace isn't saying that. No, and also uh, the question is uh, where you hide in that case. uh, The United States is still uh, the best place in the world to park your money. And the other thing, if if you were... uh, a large uh, uh, depositor in a bank, right. uh, why would you want to create a run on the bank where your money is? Yes. And, it, the Chinese don't want to uh, destabilize us in a sense of uh, having their, their uh, lending uh, fall in value. So there's some people that think we're in this new Cold War between us and China, not uh-huh. so much a tariff war as yeah. a Cold War. Um, but I read an article by Brian Westbury, um, who's a really good economist, and uh, he said, look, we, we, you know, our exports are like 100, our, or the tax that we're talking about, the tariffs, like 100 billion. Um, you know, they're about, they export basically Chinese uh, five times more than we export right. to them. And it's like, okay, it may, be a, it may be a punch in the nose to us, but for them, it's a real problem mm-hmm. if they want to play this long game. And I thought it was interesting. The U.S. isn't the only country worried about stealing of our intellectual property. Sure. These other countries are maybe looking at this, too, and saying, well, yeah, maybe maybe there's something right. Um, yeah. It just seems like this is going to drag on. And Right. I mean, it's not clear that a terrorist is a way to deal with the intellectual property thing. There's an interesting, uh, a big aside, but uh, uh, how did uh, manufacturing get started in the United States? Well, some guy from England went to Pawtucket, Rhode Island, uh, with all the plans of the English uh, woolen mills and, and set up a factory there. So intellectual property has been stolen for, for centuries. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. Uh, it, you know, I think it gets a little overblown, uh, yeah. this fear of Smoot-Hawley tariffs and all that. I, yeah. I don't think this pushes us there. It doesn't seem like it to me. And the the markets don't seem to be overly concerned with it. Right. So okay, well, I wanted to catch up on that big picture stuff, especially the state of Illinois. Well, again, but the the terror thing seems to be uh, coming home a little bit now. Uh, there's more uh, more concern about it, I think, since it's starting to have some effects. And we have these. It's kind of silly to say we're going to impose a tariff, then we're going to try to compensate the people in the United States who lose from the tariff. Right. You just can't. You can't do that. It doesn't. It has it doesn't picking work. favorites too, yeah. isn't it? I yeah. mean, uh, yeah. There's there's groups that are going to get hurt in this, but. You know, there's there's part of me, and, and maybe I'm wrong, and I, and I want to steer away from this, actually, uh, that thinks maybe we do need to take this. Th- like you said, tariffs may not be the way to do it, but in no. the background, there is a lot of intellectual property theft. No. Uh, I think I, nobody seems to doubt that or deny no. that. So I guess we'll see what happens. There's enough fireworks going on in Washington, <laughs> D.C. So we'll get back to reality here. One of the things the guys wanted to talk about today are concentrated stock positions. And the reason we talk about this is we run into it every now and then. Somebody works for an employer or they inherited a bunch of stock or they were just in love with it and it's grown into a large position and suddenly it's 25 or 35 or 40 or 50 percent of their overall net worth. And so we just wanted to have a discussion about the risks of that and kind of our views um, which are 
Uh, look, we don't buy individual stocks, so I mean, I guess from that standpoint, it's kind of foreign to us anyway when we see it. Um, but even then, I think you probably don't want to have more than four or five percent of your portfolio in any one company, if even that. Um, well, and I think even a, a maybe more vague but more specific in a weird way rule of thumb would be don't have more money in an individual stock than you can afford to lose. It's like if you can afford to lose all of the money in that stock and it's 10% of your assets or whatever, that's fine. I wouldn't advise it, but at least it's not going to wipe you out. The problem is when people have money they can't afford to lose in one company. Yeah, we faced a situation with an elderly couple, uh, quite, you know, uh, pretty serious health issues. And, you know, it's a pretty one stock and it's a major blue chip stock. And we're going to talk about how you know, some of the ways that we might deal with that issue in the event that, because there are sometimes there's reasons you don't want to. Somebody who's maybe with, we think, closer, pretty close to death, and, you know, we could eliminate all that tax if they get a step up in basis when they wake up on a cloud. Um, so what about if you're young? So let's take somebody walks in the office, which doesn't happen very often because we're in the retirement planning business, but it does happen, but and we, we still want to address it. How do we deal with it? What's your advice for the younger folks, 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, and they're, they walk in with this concentrated stock position? Is it different for them? Well, I think the first thing you need to do is look at the cost basis. So that's basically what you bought the stock for, what you invested in that company, and how much growth you have in the stock. Because, well, well, and I should even say, too, what type of account is it held in? So first and foremost, if it's held in a retirement account, you can sell it without any tax consequences. So that would be my recommendation for retirement accounts is, look, just sell it and diversify away right. from one company or sell sell it down to the point where, like I said, you can you can have a little bit in that stock if you want, if it's money you can afford to lose. But, you know, the thing to keep in mind is that one company, no matter how much of a blue chip company it is, it can always cease to exist or it can take a major hit that basically they never really fully recover from. Um, but then if it's held outside of a retirement account, there can be tax consequences. And so any of the growth on that stock will be taxed, granted at favorable long-term capital right. gains tax rates if you've held it for more than a year, which to have a substantial gain, you probably have right. held it more than a year. Um, basically, what you have to do is look at the tax impact and say, okay, well, for younger people, a lot of times there's not as much of a tax impact unless it really, really skyrocketed. Because usually when you inherit a stock, which a lot of times this is kind of how people come to, to own a, a large portion of an individual stock is they inherit it from a parent or a grandparent or something that owned it way back in the day. You get a step, it's called a step up in cost basis. So now it's kind of as if they treat it like your initial investment is the dollar value on the date that the person who passed away, the, the original owner passed away. And you can sell it basically with very little tax consequences. So then that's what I would recommend. Um, so I think for younger people, that's going to be, it's going to be more common for that scenario. And then I think you have to look at, okay, well, what if it is a, like a moderate type of capital gain or even a fairly large one? Say, it depends, you know, if you're talking to a young person as 40 or, or 50, you know, you could have a substantial capital gain in there and you, you may be really hesitant to just sell it outright. So that's when you start looking at things like, well, are there ways we can kind of get away from this stock and minimize the tax impact, which we can kind of talk about. Well, let's go right to that. I mean, uh, let's say you have to pay a, for most people, we're talking about a 15% tax, maybe if you're in the state of Illinois, another 5%. Uh, still, from that's from an historical perspective, Fred, our long-term capital gains rates on the low end, aren't they, today, for right, most right now, people? Right. Uh, so, again, uh, it's one of these uh, things where the answer is it depends on the uh, situation. So, again, it's not, they're not insignificant, but they're not... Uh, uh, confiscatory either. So it's, it's in this range where it's a, a kind of judgment call in every every case. I, I always say I try not to let the tax, you know, tail wag the dog. You know, to me, and David's even harder about this, just pay the tax, call it yeah. a lucky tax. It's a tax because it's a gain. But sometimes you'll see a situation that if we don't sell it all this year and we sell it over the next year or two or three, we can stay under that you know, limit and maybe not pay any capital gains tax at all. And I, I know that you guys will do that from time to time. Right. So you can you can 
one strategy is to sell a portion of it over time. Now the downside, the positive to that strategy is you can spread out the taxable income in more years. And sometimes, you know, even for older people, maybe you avoid kicking yourself into a higher Medicare premium right. bracket. But um, the downside is then you're exposed to that concentration risk for that much longer. And so you have to look at, at the risk side of, of the benefits of that type of approach. Um, so th- that's definitely a strategy, but it's just something, like I said, you have to really seriously consider the potential downsides. So you can you can say, well, you know, if it's December, well, you know, we could sell half of it now, and then January 1st or 2nd, we could sell the other batch and maybe minimize or eliminate those taxes. So you can at least say, well, is, is that a possibility? Suppose you run out of those possibilities and you're in this situation where you're, you're uh, fairly close to waking up on a cloud perhaps, and you have this stock that has a very low tax basis, cost basis, which means if you go and sell it now, you, you're going to pay a tax that maybe if you die within a year or two, your kids won't have to pay and get that step up of basis. But at the same time, it represents too large of a portion of my portfolio and if something horrendous happened to that company, it may put me in financial jeopardy. Then where? Then what do you do? Well, then you have a decision to make. It's like, okay, we can sit around and wait for a step up in basis when <laughs> the stock owner dies. That's one strategy, but it exposes you to that risk. So one thing you can do, and what is a fairly popular strategy um, out there, is basically using options contracts to hedge the stock position. And so one of the things you can do is a really simple strategy, but it's expensive, is you buy what's called a, a put contract or a put option. And, and I won't get into the logistics of how they work, but basically by buying a put option, you can lock in basically a floor on the stock price of the stock that you own. And you can kind of choose where you want that floor to be. So you might say... So let's just say a stock's trading at $100, and I say, look, if it goes down to 90 or 85 I don't care. That's pretty normal stuff. What I'm trying to avoid is a disaster. You know, something being down more than 50% or going away, you could set like you could set that price of where you have the option to sell it at that price, kind of to your appetite. Right, and the farther, the farther below you put... Put the it's called the strike price of the put option below the current price of the stock. The cheaper it's going to be, but obviously you're exposing yourself to that much more downside. Right, you're just saying, hey, um, I want this much insurance. So you know, uh, you're so by accepting a lower price than you know setting that strike price lower, you're saying, hey, uh, I'm willing to have a bigger deductible, so to speak, right. and therefore my premiums lower. Now this can be it can be really expensive. We're talking you know several thousand dollars to just buy the put contract. Of so let's think of it percentage terms. You might spend one or two or three percent a year if you're right. constantly hedge that stock. It's probably going to be closer to a few percentage points a year of your return. And so you are giving something up. And so you are giving something up. Now, I guess the benefit to this versus what we're going to talk about next is it still leaves you with the potential upside minus, you know, you have your right. expense, but you have all the potential upside. Um, but what's probably, I would say, even more popular than just buying a, a put option is to create what's called a collar around the stock price, essentially. And the way you do that is you're you're buying a put to lock in a floor, and you're selling what's called a call option. Basically, you're getting proceeds from that because you're selling the option. And that, but the downside to that is it kind of sets a ceiling on the growth that you can achieve. Because it could get called away from you. But the the thought process behind it is look. At this point in our life, if we're just doing this until we're, we're waiting for a step up in basis, we're not trying. We don't, we don't care so much about having maximal upside as we are controlling risk, and we want to do it in a way that isn't super expensive. Right. And so, this is a, a way that basically you're helping fund the price of that put contract by selling the call option. And it's called a, like I think really intuitively the way to think about it is like the name implies. You're just putting a collar around the stock price. So you're saying, we're going to use these options contracts to allow the price to drift between here and here. Right. If it goes above that, it's going to get called away from me, and I'm going to have a nice capital gain, and I'm going to may have to pay taxes if it gets exercised. That, those are details I don't want to get into. And we know that we know what our pain point is, so we've locked in our maximum gain and our maximum loss. And at a, at a point where we think is, you know, as a client, that's acceptable to me. So the main thing what we're we're trying to get on that is not the details of 
how exactly. and when it's done is that there are some pretty uh, rather simple ways to deal with this that occasionally we have to take advantage of and we have to do that. Um, and then there's a third option. Well, I was going to talk about a couple other things too. Okay. Is One thing to consider is if you're charitably inclined and you're making charitable gifts, one thing you can do is you can transfer a good chunk of that stock to a donor advised fund. Um, you're basically eliminating some of that capital appreciation, um, the capital gains basically built into that stock, and you're you're going to do it in a big chunk so that you get a tax deduction. That's kind of the advantage of a donor advised fund is you can concentrate. Well, explain what a donor advised fund is first. Basically, what what it is is you can you can put money into this donor advised fund in whatever amount you want. So it's like putting it into a charitable fund that right. you do get to take the tax deduction if you can itemize. But you don't and have. The, and there's major firms like Fidelity and Schwab. Most of the major brokerage firms have donor advised funds. So instead of giving your money outright to your church or your temple or your other 501c3s, you say, I'm not sure where I'm going to end up giving it. I can use this donor advised fund, put the money in it, take my charitable deduction. I just wanted to explain what a donor right. advised fund was. And so the advantage to that is then you can gift the money in as small of increments as you want over time. But it allows you to basically, you know, now with higher standard deductions, if you did just a small uh, charitable contribution every year, you might not actually get any tax benefit from that because you might already be taking the standard standard deduction regardless. This kind of allows you to do that. But then that also will basically give you this big tax deduction that you can use to just outright sell some stock and kind of mitigate the tax impact somewhat just doing that. So that's a way to to whittle down your position and, and reduce the tax. So you can also reallocate it within a donor. You don't have to keep it in that stock. Right. Once it gets there, you can put it into a more broadly based kind of portfolio. Yep. That's exactly right. So you get to diversify. You get, you get the, since you have this tax implication if you were to just sell it if you were going to give it away anyway you, you eliminate that taxation uh, you get your deduction and then down the road you can choose you know who gets the money as long as they're a bona fide charity the whole point of this concentrated stock position is look um, it's something you really need to think about it's, it's a risk issue potentially and uh, look there's some emotions involved sometimes when we inherit stocks it's you know that was dad's stock and I really don't want to sell it Again, I think, as you said, David, you, a lot of times what we'll do is say, here's your plan that's completely diversified, and here's what your life looks like if you enter our world. Okay. Now, if we keep that 50% of your portfolio in that one stock, here's the additional risk, and here's the impact on your lifestyle potentially. If, 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 if they like it, keep holding the stock. If you don't, in other words, we're just pricing risk. We're saying there is this risk here. Um, and, if it, and if the decision is, yeah, I don't want to accept that risk, but I got this tax issue, there's ways to deal around it uh, for every type of scenario. If it's someone who's close to death and maybe can get avoid it by, uh, by getting a stepped up in basis when they die, then there's the option strategies to hedge it. And option strategies naturally strike a chord. People think, oh, that's risky. When you're using them to hedge like this, it's really taking risk down, not up. Uh, and then, of course, there's the charitable idea. So there are things to be done, and you can create lemonade out of lemons. Um, but the main thing is don't have more 4 or 5% of your portfolio, your stock portfolio, in any one stock. Yeah, there's an, an adjunct to this, which is much more controversial. Uh, what about farmers and closely held businesses? <laughs> That's well, that's a, you know what, that's a kind of a different level. You're right. Um, uh, farmers, that's a whole different it's the know, same idea, but it's more difficult to diversify in those situations. It is because, let's face it, uh, Fred, I've been in this for 35 years, and like a lunkhead, it took me about 20 years to figure out that when you mentioned selling farmland to a farmer or a family that's farmlands, they look at you like you just came, like you're a Martian, you know? Yeah. So now I don't even talk about that anymore, and I think everybody accepts that's just a risk the family takes. But there, there are options that farmers don't like. You could... Uh, sell the land with the ability to rent it for a certain number of years and it's sort of like hedging but no one wants to do that yeah i mean you're it's uh, i found that you know you discuss the risk and then quickly kind of move away yeah. from it and say so you can say that you had it when it comes to a closely held business it's the same thing uh it's just a higher risk uh but you know that's usually their baby something they've created or the family created and uh and then 
in those situations, at least, for instance, if you're in the retail business, maybe the other parts of your portfolio don't <laughs> want to be retail. You may you want to think about strategies that say, okay, if we have a really so a, so if I'm a, a retail store, recessions are a problem for me. You know, I'm probably going to sell less stuff. Is there are there other types of investments you try to think about that could maybe offset some of that pain? Sometimes there is, sometimes well, there isn't. And don't you think with any small business owner, someone who's like you know involved in a startup or of a small company, you can get attached. And there is always this decision of, well, do I reinvest money back into my business or do I basically make like a 401k contribution or an IRA contribution and diversify away from my business? And I think the right answer is going to kind of depend on your risk tolerance because I do think it's in the case where you own your own small business, there's pro- even with an individual stock, I suppose, there's more potential upside, but obviously much more risk, especially when it's where you're you're drawing your financial livelihood from. So, so now we're talking about you're working for this big company. They have this program that you can invest in the company stock. And sometimes that leads to a disaster. Sometimes it leads to riches. Um, we've seen a lot, you know, the riches take care of themselves. It's the disasters. And when we think about the big ones, uh, Enron and some of these others, it's still... Lehman Brothers. It, Lehman, it's still another, it's like, wait a minute, your career is attached to them. So the minute there's a problem with that company, you may not have a job. And if there's a problem with the company and they're laying off a lot of people, chances are their earnings have gone down and the stock prices also hurting at the same time. Or they might cut dividends if it's bad enough and you've just made a bad situation worse. worse. What about um, kind of a different twist on this, uh, thinking about diversification? And it's really not directly related, but, uh, you know, maybe you're working in a certain type of industry. Uh should you invest even in your diversified portfolio any concentrations and like if i work for a high-tech company and i'm i'm, I'm ensconced in that uh i suppose my 401k plan shouldn't be full of high-tech mutual funds no i don't think so i <clears throat> i guess it depends how like detailed and complicated you want to get because there's part of me that thinks if it's me i'm going to be fine with my career being you know in this high-tech sector or whatever i'm you know you're doing and just be super diversified, just as we are in general. So if I'm owning something like a total world stock ETF, it's like, yeah, I'm still going to own some technology companies, but it's such a small portion, it's not going to be a problem. There are people who would say, look, you, you could totally exclude those from your portfolio and even go one step further. And I don't know what it would be, but if there's something that tends to do well Value when, strategy, when tech companies yeah. do poorly, you could overweight that. Some of it comes down to how complicated you yeah, are. Yeah, I think the simplest example is, hey, just diversify everywhere else outside of that career uh, as best as you can and don't try to overthink it. Just don't be working for a high-tech company and then all of your money is in a high-tech exchange-traded fund or mutual fund so that if the tech industry gets blown up, you're out of a job and your 401k is blown up. You want to avoid that as well. Well, and I think the biggest thing is to never just totally dismiss the idea that the company you're invested in has the potential to either go completely out of business or, like I said, just experience a huge sustained decline I where they it. just never really I, recover. Because I, I think almost everyone who has a concentrated stock position, a lot of times it's because it's a company they're really familiar with, and that makes them feel safe. Like, oh, no, this is a really good company. I'm an insider. It'll I never know. happen to this. They've got strong earnings, whatever they want to talk about, whatever their rationale is. Or it's something they just have an emotional attachment to, and or they ma- they have made a lot of money, and it's just something to always remember that there there a lo- I could go back through time. There's a lot of companies that back in the day were like the ultimate blue chip company that don't exist anymore. Well, I lived it, you know, when I started a trust company and then a bank, and eventually sold it to these guys in Chicago uh, in the early 2000s, and in the and then I, but I kept like a dummy. So, but I'm an entrepreneur. So this is what entrepreneurs do. So I wasn't out there, to my mind, speculating. I just put all my money back in and still owned about 15% of the overall institution. And it was one of the first banks that got taken over in 2008, 2000. You know, in the in the in the Great Recession. And I was getting ready to put in my last big lump of liquidity when we needed to raise some more capital. And six months later, there was a cease and desist order. Now, if you, you couldn't have convinced me. Uh, I would have thought you were the nut 
that there right. could have been problems in that institution for whatever reason. I, I think it was a macro deal, um, but it doesn't matter. The, the point is I've actually experienced, I know what it's like to lose basically all of your money because you weren't diversified. Now people might say, how could you be a financial advisor and not be diversified? I'm talking about the special situation here where you're an entrepreneur and that's what you do and that's what you know and you put it all on the line and that's how much you believe in it. And that's just what, to me, I guess that's what entrepreneurs do. I wouldn't do that in my 401k or my other investing. I'd be the contrary. But I'm, I think the point I'm trying to make is sometimes it's impossible to convince somebody that they shouldn't put all of their 401k in the company stock just because, you're, you're, as you said it, David, they're in there looking at the numbers, seeing the flow, seeing the productivity, and it's always this absurd macro event or some other event that you couldn't have seen coming. That's the whole point. Sometimes I talk to clients, I have to be really blunt, and I have to run to the absurd, and I have to give the craziest thing that could happen. I have a client that has a large position in a food company stock. Mm -hmm. One of the best stocks probably of the last 50 years. And it's a really boring company. And my point is, I said, well, what if they uh, poison a 1,000 people and they die? I mean, it's going to have an impact. Well, that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. I, I said, I don't think it's going to happen either. But things happen. And, and, and we have to go through this and say, well, what do you think would happen? And what do you think would happen to your stock? And what do you think would happen to you if that happened? And if the answer is, look, I'm going to live my life mm -hmm. no matter what, then it's fine. We've addressed it and we can move on. But it's... It's always more complicated than you think. We, uh, I, I was involved in a professional organization where we had a like a million dollar amount to uh, to invest in our. We had an act a treasurer who was an active person thought he knew. So, uh, like uh, 15 years ago or so, we, we had uh, uh, mortgage instruments, automobile stocks, and, and bank oh, stocks. Yeah. <laughs> and so, t 2000. Eight comes along, and all three of those industries are really uh, devastated. Yeah. They, they seemed like totally reasonable strategy beforehand, but you know, we changed to totally passive but, uh, a little bit before that. You know, in, in Fred, it's what we call the heartbreak of active management. Ultimately, yeah. it's probably going to get you and set in. It doesn't have to 100% of the time, but the vast majority of the time, if you keep playing that, I can pick stocks better than a mutual. You know, it's not even stocks; these are, are just industries. Like yeah. saying, you know, talking about concentrating in everything. That if there was a really bad macro event economically, these three are the first to get shot. You know, it's like, and and it's because they were so attractive at the time. Uh, bank stocks, in particularly at the time, had very large dividend yields, yeah. six, seven, eight percent, and that's what people. I've always said I've seen more money lost by chasing yield you know, like dividend yield or high yields in bonds, then probably, to me, the mainstream equities cannot, in my view, cannot create a loss. People create losses because all you have to do is wait it out and historically, you're, you're not, don't have to accept a loss. But you can buy individual stocks on the basis of yield or even industries almost. The bank, if you had, if you were loaded up on bank stocks in 2008, 2009, and that was your theme, you saw your dividends almost disappear. And some of your bank stocks disappeared and the ones that didn't disappear were really impacted negatively for a large number of years. Some of them have never recovered. Uh, so it's just a risk <clears throat> we wanted to talk about and, and bring up today. Fred, you mentioned that the House of Representatives passed a bill. I know the Senate passed a bill, I think, prior to that. They're both, there's some subtle differences between the two. Um, but any big any big news in these? Because it looks like one of them's going to pass. Well, the big news was that it was... Uh, almost passed unanimously, which almost never happens right. in Congress today. There's like 400 votes for and three or four votes against. So it's a major kind of thing. Uh, again, it's, it's a situation where no one would want to take action now based on this because it hasn't been finalized yet and it may take uh, months to do that. But it basically changes in modest ways uh, uh, various kinds of retirement situations. I think the most, uh, the biggest part of it is Making annuities more more available, and again, that's the argument is whether that was done because of the uh, a pressure from the insurance industry. And uh, probably, but, but there's a lot of academics yeah. that write pretty eloquently and pretty uh, persuasively that okay. that annuities should be a part of. I, I may agree or disagree yeah. on that, but uh, they certainly make a pretty eloquent case that, and so it's kind of accommodating yeah, I mean, some of that a, research too, and, and a little bit broader, uh, not just annuities, but some way of being able to. Withdraw your money uh, evenly over a long period of time. Annuities is one way of doing that, but uh, 
there's a lot of interest now. Uh, uh, some of the people like uh, Robert Merton is talking more about instead of the problem is investing, the problem now is how do you take it out and how do you right. use it uh, properly. So this is part of that, and it may enhance the choices that people have. And I know they're trying to make it easier for small companies to band together because it's pretty expensive. We have a 401k plan, and it's amazing the cost. Uh, we, I guess we pay it with happy dollars, but it's a bigger number than you think for such a what should be simple people just want to put money away in a retirement especially account. in percentage terms uh, again the same organization i was talking about had three employees then we we're ending up paying four or five percent of yeah. the uh, cost of the uh the management administration of the plan yeah and so this is going to allow them to band together hopefully maybe get some economies of scale by yeah. using these multi-plans uh, one of them, I don't know if it's the House or the Senate, one of them says it makes it easier for people to uh, be, you know, uh, qualify, be enrolled in the plan. A lot of times it's a thousand dollar, a thousand hour minimum before you can be in the plan. And now they're saying they're trying to make it 500 hours to let part time employees, more part time employees as part of it. Uh, so there's, but, uh, you know, it's, I think we talked about this beforehand. Why not really simplify this and make it real simple? Anybody that has a job and has earnings can put 18 or 24 or whatever, 1,000 in an IRA plan and take it completely out of the companies. And if the companies right. want to match, they can match it into those people's IRAs. It would seem to me the ultimate yeah. simplicity and uh, to get out of this. There's nothing really earth-shaking in these bills that I think fundamentally. They act like yeah. it's going to solve this retirement crisis. I don't see anything yeah. in either of those two bills that – goes anywhere near solving the retirement crisis, well, if there, there is one. There's, along with the bill, there were lots of uh, statements about how, how terrible uh, the retirement situation is. And it's really uh, kind of uh, the best of all times and the worst of all times that uh, 50, 60, 70 percent of people are, are pretty well yeah. set in terms of the retirement. There's a smaller percentage who are uh, ill-equipped to, to go to retirement, but many of those people are people who didn't do particularly well during their working life right. either. So it's not likely you're going to have a, 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 a better situation when you retire than when you were working. So, so are you saying that if we don't have equal talent, we may not have equal outcomes? Right. Okay. Or equal, not not just talent, but also uh, a discipline and so on in terms well, of that. Uh, yeah, you, can, okay. you, can, you can have a adequate retirement if you're disciplined on a modest salary. I think that's what frustrates some of my clients when they hear this. We have basically that millionaire next door, that yeah. person that worked at Kraft since they were in high school. They still live in their $100,000 house. You know, they probably never made more than thirty-five grand working at Kraft, and yet they walk out of there with seven, dollars $800,000 in their 401k and profit-sharing plan. And, you know, and almost to a person, they say, well, we never made much money. We had kids. We just didn't go on Facebook vacations, which are fancy pants vacations that you get to brag about. They didn't buy a new car every three years. They didn't buy a Suburban that, or, you know, a big SUV that costs $85,000. It now is becoming more of an IQ test, I think, mm -hmm. than anything. Um, you, you know, all these things that they just they lived you know, modestly, frugally, because of that, they were able to save money slowly and patiently. And then you wake up one day and you're 60 or 65 years old. And mm. Most people don't have much money and some people have uh, quite a bit or at least enough right. uh, to, to not only sustain their life, to live an enhanced lifestyle in retirement. Uh, so I don't know if there's anything we can do to, what do you think, Fred, about an idea such as mandating that everybody uh, I think Australia does something like that. I could be yeah. wrong on that, but saying everybody, say along with Social Security, I don't want to cloud it by saying replace Social Security, but in addition to Social Security, 5 or 10% of your paycheck has to go into like a government TSP, a, tre uh, yeah. a th thrift savings plan. It's basically a super low-cost 401k plan that's rather simple. Uh, I was thinking about that this morning. I don't know how I feel about that. I'm like, well, let people do what they want to do. I'm kind of a yeah. libertarian, and if they want to blow their brains out, either financially or yeah. physically, let them. Or do we do something like that to try to head off this retirement supposed yeah. crisis? Well, the problem is not, uh, it's not the uh, fiscal equivalent of suicide. It's the uh, fiscal equivalent of uh, people being 70 years old and having nothing to live on and the, the society has to take care of them. So there, there is an argument why you might want to require that. That was actually not not a whole lot different from some of the uh, the Bush administration proposals about Social Security. And it's always hit with a, uh, the term, well, you're trying to privatize Social Security. Right. You're trying to 
you're trying to split it up into two parts, uh, yeah. a traditional um, Social Security plan plus a savings plan. But again, it's very hard to do given the, the, the problems we face already with Social yeah. Security. Sorry, Ryan, I, a couple <laughs> of your sections, you know, I haven't really allowed you. But now when you're talking to your you know, comrades that are 30-ish, uh, is there a lot of whining as if they can't, that there's no way they're going to be able to retire? It's just like the system's against them, or do you, is it soup to nuts? No, I don't think so. I think we've already kind of accepted as in our generation we're going to have a lower Social Security anyway, so it's kind of just been baked in for us from the beginning. And I think the group that I've uh, been friends with has been kind of hard workers anyway, so they say, well, I just have to work Are they uh, putting away, you know, like really slamming money away yet? I think a lot of people are slamming a lot of money away. Now, I don't know exact dollars, but we talk in generalities, and it seems that it is something that people are doing in their early 30s and that I'm friends with. Are they aware that really it's going to be up to them in order to have a a retirement, however they want to define that? Uh, You think there's a a strong awareness that that Social Security isn't going to do it even if it stays the same, that you really have to slam money away early and, and often? Whether they realize Social Security is like not acceptable at all, I don't know. But I think they just have a general sense from upbringing that you're responsible for yourself and you have to work hard for yourself and you get what you put in. That's because you didn't hang around losers like I did when I was here. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, guys, that went fast. I'm sorry. I don't. We kind of really went off script today somewhat. Uh, but I think we covered some areas that I think could be helpful to people, hopefully so. Uh, we'll let Ryan participate more next time. And <laughs> Ryan's thinking, yeah, I'll believe that when I see it. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money. Thank you, Dr. Fred Gertz. Nice Thank to be you, here. David Rudy and Ryan Repko from Rudy Wealth Management. We'll be back in a couple of weeks for more of Paul Rudy's On The Money Radio. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On The Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.